chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Well, happy Christmas. Happy Christmas to you. I trust if you weren't feeling the Christmas spirit, then you certainly are now, after singing uh, these wonderful carols together. My name is Philip. As Jason mentioned, I have the privilege of leading the church here. And it's great to see you. You're ever so welcome. Hope you're having a great time with us. Whether this is the first time you've been with us at King's Church or whether you're part of King's Church, you're ever so welcome. And I trust you're having a fantastic time with us. Um, the passage that, that uh, Hannah just read so wonderfully, you may not have heard the actual reading from the Bible before, but I'm sure you may well have heard the story that it tells uh, the story, the part of the Christmas story where the wise men from the east uh, come via a star to seek and find Jesus and bring these slightly curious gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. I guess most of us would have heard at least something of that story before. And uh, it reminds me of a story I heard quite recently from a primary school nativity play. I'm sure a few of you parents have been to a few nativity plays in your time. And this primary school nativity play had reached the very same scene that we've just reached. The wise men bringing their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh to little baby Jesus. And uh, the first little boy very somberly approached Jesus' uh, crib with his present very seriously. I bring you gold, he says. Off he went. Second little boy approaches Jesus in his crib very seriously. I bring you myrrh. Off he goes. Third little boy, third wise man, approaches Jesus in his crib. Um, Frank sent this. <laughs> true story. I'm sure it is a true story. It's been making me chuckle all week. And of course, uh, the fact that the wise men gave presents... Uh, set in motion a rather wonderful tradition, didn't it, of us giving and receiving presents at Christmas time. It's one of the best traditions, I think, about Christmas. 
And uh, in terms of Christmas traditions, I don't know how your family approaches Christmas, whether you're a very traditional family or whether you like to kind of mix it up each year. But my family, I have to say, we're, we're a pretty traditional family. We like to do things uh, with fairly sort of centuries-old traditions. Uh, and I think this traditional approach to Christmas probably stems from my grandfather. Uh, my grandfather is a very traditional man. He's a wonderful man. And he's a very traditional man. So he was educated at Cambridge University. And uh, he was an officer in the army for many, many years. He's a staunch supporter of the royal family. He's a very traditional man. And uh, one of the traditions that he, and as a consequence my father, have kind of insisted upon, believe it or not, is that on Christmas Day, we don't open our presents until after the Queen's speech. Um, I don't know whether you have the same tradition in, in, your, in your household, judging by the blunt looks, probably not. Uh, I appreciate we're in the minority with this rather strange tradition, which is frankly a difficult tradition when you're 35, like I am. When you're five... This is a, it's like a tortuous process. I grew up hating the Queen, basically. Because as far as I was concerned, she was single-handedly responsible for me not being able to open my presents until 10 past 3 in the afternoon. And uh, another slightly curious tradition that we have uh, in our family, which again, is inextricably linked to my very traditional grandfather, uh, is that when we had uh, Christmas at my grandparents back in the day, they would insist that the main Christmas meal, turkey and all the trimmings, they would insist that the main Christmas meal actually took place in the evening after all the children had gone to bed. I know, it's an R of sympathy in the audience. And uh, that makes my grandparents sound really mean, and they weren't. They aren't. They're absolutely the most wonderful people, and we had great Christmases with them. But they're very, very traditional as far as they were concerned. Christmas meal was an evening affair. The adults would dress up in black tie, very, very formal, and they would eat their Christmas dinner in the evening, and us children would be to disappear off to bed. And I can still remember now kind of uh, going up the stairs and sort of wistfully gazing back down, see the dining room door just ajar, could see the candlelight flickering in the gap in the door. Could hear the overhear the sound of conversation and, and crackers being pulled and glasses chinking. And I would mournfully make my way to bed and missing out on this evening festivities. Indeed, indeed. I'm just getting over it now. It's like therapy talking about it <laughs> with you guys. Very good of you. And uh, but wonderfully, or a couple of years later, from my memory, I must have been 11 or 12. I remember my grandfather, who I absolutely adored and still do. I remember him taking me to one side and saying, Philip, I really want you this year to join the grown-ups for Christmas dinner. I really would love you to stay up this year with us grown-ups and enjoy the whole evening together. Which is brilliant news. I absolutely worship the ground that my grandfather walked on. It was even better news because I'm the oldest of four siblings. <laughs> so I got to very gleefully explain to my siblings that they would not be staying up for Christmas dinner, but I would which I did very lovingly and humbly, as you can probably tell. But what made it even better, what made it really, really special, was that my grandfather, he wanted me there. My mum didn't twist his arm. My dad didn't just sneak me in, in the corner. My grandfather, he wanted me there next to him, enjoying the food and the conversation and the pulling of crackers and the chinking of glasses and the laughter. He invited me. He invited me to be there. And uh, this part of the Christmas story really is one where we see that, if anything, invitations have been issued. Invitations have been issued, and they're specific invitations. The invitation is to come and seek and find a king. 
And Matthew, who wrote this account of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, Matthew lived with Jesus, knew Jesus, and he's one of the four gospel writers who wrote down the account of what he saw. Matthew really wants us to understand that this part of the Christmas story is about invitations and it's about kingship. And it's about kingship, we can tell. You might have clocked the reading. Because Matthew straight away wants us to see, is this King Herod guy, who's kind of the Roman's political stooge at the time, is he the king of the Jews? Or is this two-year-old Jesus the king of the Jews? That's the question that Matthew really wants us to understand. And the second thing Matthew wants us to understand is that the story is about invitations. Because Matthew wants us to see who has been specifically invited to seek the king. Luke, in his account of Jesus' life and the Christmas story, he tells us about the shepherds. Remember them? But Matthew wants us to focus upon these wise men as they're called. And if Jesus is the king of the Jews, and that's the claim that causes such uproar at the beginning of his life and all the way through his life, then we've got to ask, why are these non-Jewish men invited, invited by curious means of a star to come and seek and find this king? And who are? Who are these wise men who've appeared in countless nativity plays over the generations? I wonder whether any of you have played the wise men in the good old school nativity play. I haven't. I seem to always get an angel part, which has slightly haunted me ever since. But some of you may have played the parts of the, of the wise men. Who were they? Well, it seems there probably were more than three of them. It seems there probably would have been a number of them. Uh, we're told that they were from the east. They're probably astrologers or philosophers. And by from the east, we think they're probably from the Babylonian Empire in those days, which would have been kind of near modern-day Baghdad. Certainly, they were foreigners. They weren't Jews. They were outsiders. You see, you've got to understand, up until this point, the whole story of the Bible has all been focused upon the Jewish nation. All of God's plans and purposes have been centered around the Jewish people. And suddenly, at the most significant moment of the story of the Bible so far, in come these foreigners, these outsiders. I want you to understand this, because even though these men probably were very educated, probably were very wealthy, as foreigners to come into a Jewish religious context was, was almost unknown. They would have been considered unclean, not to be mixed with. And certainly not to be invited into the very presence of the future king of Israel. And Christians believe, indeed, the future king of the world. They weren't supposed to be there. And yet they were invited, invited to be present. Let me tell you a story. It's a great story of a young woman called Shonza. I came across her story this year. Shonza's life really was turned upside down quite dramatically in 2009. In, uh, in the middle of 2009, she suffered a dramatic stroke and consequent ill health as a result. Worse still, shortly afterwards, Shonza became homeless. She was only 18 at the time. She became homeless for a number of reasons. And uh, things got pretty bad. She was sofa surfing around London. And actually, things got so bad that she applied for an emergency council bed in a hostel. But wonderfully, she uh, met with some amazing help from a homeless charity. They really helped her, met her needs, helped her to get her life back on track. And her life really did get back on track. To the point where, by 2011, February, two years later, actually the homeless charity invited Shonza to be like a guest of honour at, at a fundraising dinner. 
And they wanted, their, they wanted her there to encourage her, and they also wanted her to make a short speech so that she could kind of bear witness to the work of the charity she had done for her. And when she arrived, she realised, she didn't know before, she realised that one of the patrons of the charity was none other than Prince William. Which, when you're a 20-year-old girl, I gather, is quite an exciting thing. And uh, he was so moved, actually. He was so moved by, uh, by her story of surmounting difficulty, of overcoming obstacles, that he personally, after the dinner, went up to her and said, that's just a wonderful speech, congratulated her, encouraged her. That was, that was wonderful enough. But about four or five days later, a little letter dropped through the post, Shonza's letterbox. And she realised that on the front of the letter was a royal stamp. And so I'm sure, like you and I would do, she tore it open quickly and out came a couple of pieces of paper. One was a handwritten note by <coughs> Prince William, again encouraging her and congratulating her on all that she'd achieved and was set to achieve. The other thing was a personal invitation from Prince William to attend his wedding later that year to Kate. And so, rather wonderfully, uh, I don't know whether you have planned to do this yourself. Uh, Shonza had planned to be part of the wedding, in a sense, to go into the streets of London and to celebrate along with people like you and I and to cheer Will and Kate on from afar. But actually, to her amazement, on the 29th of April 2011, the 20-year-old Shonza found herself seated in Westminster Abbey as an invited guest of the future king. And she said this, I'd walked past Westminster Abbey a few times, but I never thought I'd be invited to go in, and definitely not for a royal wedding. Shonza was an outsider. She's an outsider. She's not the kind of person you'd ever expect to have been invited to a royal event personally by the future king himself. And yet there she was, amidst the pomp and the ceremony uh, and the fame and the joy and the excitement. There she was. All because the future king went to the effort of personally inviting her to get a taste of his royal kingdom. I want to suggest to you that at Christmas we see that God went to extraordinary lengths to invite outsiders to the presence of the king. And I, my, one of my observations over, over time has been that sometimes when it comes to coming to God, exploring God, searching out who or what he might be, sometimes people, including myself over the years, we can feel like we need to be the, like, the right kind of person. We can feel like we maybe need to be, to be living a, a respectable life, kind of maybe have all of our ducks in a row, perhaps doing certain things, not doing certain things. The Christmas story shows us, I believe, that God invites all and any and everyone to find him, including those who might feel like they don't belong, including those, perhaps, who have no religious credentials, including those who might look differently, talk differently, speak differently. These wise men were all of those things. They weren't supposed to be there. And yet they were invited to seek and know the presence of Jesus the King. At which point, perhaps some of you, let's kind of be honest together, some of you might say, that's great, Philip. This is, this is really nice, the carols and the, the wonderful singers with extraordinary diction, the musicians and the reading. It's all wonderful. And even the idea of a God who is real and who can be sought, it's all wonderful. I just don't know if it's true. 
not sure it's true. If you, um, you might remember last year was the centenary of the birth of the famous and wonderful Welsh poet, Dylan Thomas. And uh, he once said that all of his poetry was, uh, or sorry, all of his work was poetry in praise of God's world by a man who doesn't believe in God. And perhaps you feel like that this evening, kind of singing these wonderful carols, praising the nature and character of God who you just don't know is true. I want to suggest to you that if that's the case, Christmas is such a good time to be asking these kinds of questions, isn't it? It's a great time to be asking the big questions of faith, of doubt, of truth, of reality, of the nature of God, who he is, what he is. Christmas is a great time to be asking those questions. The beginning of the new year is a great time, isn't it? To take stock, to reflect, to ask those kinds of questions. So given that we're talking about invitations, I want to invite you. I want to invite you to be with us here at King's Church. We meet here every Sunday, not next Sunday, but from the 3rd of January onwards. We meet here every, uh, every, every week, 10.15. Remarkably good coffee at 10.15 out there. And then we get going in here at 10.30. We'd love you to join us. You see, the reason that we meet here as a church each Sunday is because we want to respond to the invitation of Jesus to meet with him, to know him, to kind of learn what it might be to be a follower of his. That's why we and many other churches meet Sunday by Sunday. And I'm telling you, we don't have all the answers. We have our questions. We have our doubts. And I want to invite you to join us each Sunday, any Sunday you choose, as we explore what it might be to find and meet the King, Jesus. Interestingly, it seemed that Dylan Thomas did a bit of that. Later in his life, it seems that he must have worked through and asked some of these pretty big questions of life and truth and reality and meaning. And it seems that he himself came to faith in God towards the end of his life. And he actually describes God, I think, just beautifully. Listen to this classic Dylan Thomas poetry as he describes God. He says, God is the author, the Milky Way farmer, the first cause, the architect, Lamp lighter, quintessence, the beginning words. He on top of the hill in heaven who weeps. And when he weeps, light and tears come down together. Just beautiful description. At Christmas, we're reminded that God, if I can quote Dylan Thomas, is the Milky Way farmer who weeps. Or to put it a different way, he is both creator and the one who cares. I don't really know how the, uh, how the whole star thing worked. I don't know how the star led these guys from the, mid, from, the, from the east all the way to Jerusalem and then again the five miles to, to Bethlehem and then again to the little house. Oh, I don't know how that worked. <laughs> but if God, if God is a creator God, if he is the designer behind this extraordinary universe, if he is the Milky Way farmer, if that's the case, then I don't think it's unreasonable to suggest that perhaps he could deploy his creation in any way he chose in order to accomplish his purposes. And we see that his purposes are the purposes of a creator who cares, who cares deeply. Purposes intended to draw any and everyone, even those who might never have imagined or dreamt they'd ever be included. His purposes are to include and invite all 
to seek and know the King, Jesus. I want to suggest to you that that first Christmas, the Milky Way farmer tended his constellation in the sky just perfectly to make an invitation to those outsiders to come and search for and meet the King at Christmas. And it's been my experience as a Christian and as somebody who's counted myself not a Christian. It's been my experience that God is a God who invites continually. I've known him to be an invitational God. When I've been getting it right, whatever that means, and when I've been getting it wrong, I've known God to be a God who invites. God never, ever forces himself upon us. He's an invitational God. And you might be a little bit kind of further along on the journey of faith, perhaps further along on knowing what it is to to kind of follow Jesus and to give your life to him. If that's the case, I want to encourage you this Christmas to consider what it means to make Jesus the king at Christmas, to center our Christmas around his kingship. He's inviting you all the time to do that, continually. This king that we have is the most generous of kings. And so in, in the midst of the presence and the conversation and the fun and the rest and the pulling of crackers and the opening of presents before the Queen's speech, let's thank him. Let's thank the king at Christmas. And he's also a king who is to be trusted. He's a king who has suffered. And so if Christmas actually is a time where stress and worry and even loneliness and despair is prevalent, let's trust the king through that at Christmas. And like I said, if, if you, like Dylan Thomas, all those years ago, are thinking, I just don't know if this is true. I want to extend an invitation to you. I want to encourage you to be like the wise men. The wise men. To hear an invitation and to seek and to explore and to ask questions and to pursue whether this indeed is true. How can you do that? Well, just one example. We've got some Bibles here. If you want to just continue reading Matthew's account of Jesus' death, life, death, and resurrection, you'd be ever so helpful, ever so welcome to take one of these away. Little Christmas gift from King's Church to you. You can even wrap it up if you want. Stick it in a stocking. We've heard the beginning of Matthew's account this evening of Jesus' birth. Why not read the rest of what he has to say? You may well, at the end of that, conclude, like Dylan Thomas did originally, that it's just not true. It's a nice story. I don't think it's true. That's fine. You may conclude, like Dylan Thomas later did, that actually this Jesus is not only the most captivating and fascinating character where compassion and justice and bravery and truth and mercy and love come together in a beautiful hybrid, but it's also true. And he's the king to center your life around. It's been my testimony. It's been my experience that I've known what it is to have a God who so gently, when I was so far off, invited me bit by bit to put my life under his kingship. Can I invite our wonderful musicians and choir back up to join me? Aren't they wonderful? They're serving us so brilliantly. We're going to sing our next carol together in a second. As we do that, as Jason and Becca mentioned, the offering basket will go around. That's to, for us our chance to support Kingston Community School and to bless the children into the new year. So if you'd like to give to that, please do. But there is no compulsion. Whatever you would like to do, please uh, 
take a moment to do that. And as I say, we're going to sing this next carol together. So why don't we stand?